0: This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voices of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voices of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Yes, I vote because I feel like, as an African American female, like I want my voice to be heard. And um, conservative values. So I vote very conservative. So I try to vote for candidates that have very conservative viewpoints. Oh, I don't vote anymore now. Why not?
1: Um, just because I don't. Um,
2: I vote because it is our right to vote, and I take it seriously. This is San Diego Decides, a podcast by Voice of San Diego. I'm Sarah Libby, and I'm here with my pal, Rye Rivard.
0: Hey, Sarah Libby. Hey.
2: What's up, Rye?
0: What's going on, Sarah?
2: We only have two episodes of this podcast left before people vote on things.
0: If they're not already voting already by mail. They might
2: be voting as they're listening to this podcast. How magical would that be?
0: You could be filling out your ballot and listening to us both. That would be fantastic and very democratic.
2: So today we're going to talk about a lot of legal issues. We're going to be talking about the race for city attorney, which is quite hot. Very. Maybe the hottest race we have.
0: And we're going to be talking about probably what's not hot, superior court judge races.
2: Exactly. We have both (laughs) ends of the spectrum. You might say I haven't passed the bar, but I know a little bit, or I'm about to.
0: I don't know. You wouldn't say that? It's just me. I think I wouldn't have thought of that.
2: Okay. So city attorney is a race that is happening between four major candidates. Four. That's right. Four to five. (laughs) So, yeah, this is like the biggest race in town. The race for mayor is a little vanilla at this point. Um, but this has three, four major Democrats, um, and one Republican, Bob Hickey, we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's really heating up, um, especially as we get down to the wire to see who's going to make it, um, past the June primary. Um, and we had, you know, every journalist dream this last week or two, which is ads, ads are starting to happen. And so two of the candidates, Gil Cabrera and Rafael Castellanos, have released ads. And let's give Rafael's a listen first.
3: Can you say this guy's name?
2: I think it's Rafael
0: Castellanos.
1: Castellano.
0: He's the outsider who will shake
3: up City Hall. He's on the port working to great jobs.
1: Rafael Castell.
2: He He wants better schools.
3: And he'll fix our streets.
2: Castellanos. Verde?
3: Come on, now, now, now you're just joking. No. Right. Can you say this guy's name? How do you say his name again? Oh,
1: it's Rafael Castellanos.
3: Just remember, it's the longest name on the ballot, Rafael Castellanos.
2: So the first thing that I have to say, and you, it's not quite as clear when you're listening to it as when you're watching it. Um, it drives me insane that the entire ad is basically predicated on like a dumb woman who obviously can't read.
0: Or pronounce Spanish words here in this border city.
2: Right. So, I mean, he has a phonetically normal name, Castellanos, and yet somehow there are R's introduced to this. Caster is like one of the options <laughs> for some reason. So like dumb lady can't read is the basis of the ad.
0: I remember learning in high school that the double L is a Y sound in, in the Spanish language, and uh, I've remembered that ever since.
2: Yeah. So I don't know. I, I mean, it's it's pretty logical, I think, to say your name uh, and to get voters to learn your name and understand it. I, that's, you know, a reasonable thing. But I just think that the way this was done, just it being like some dumb lady uh, kind of sticks with me a bit.
0: I covered a, well, I, I covered a, a gentleman who was on the West Virginia Supreme Court who had a last name of Ketchum. And he did one of these ads, but it was ketchup, And it was just like, goofy hard to remember last name with this like identifiable household product and that was actually effective for him but I don't know the uh, voters don't know how to pronounce my last name even though it's kind of normal strategy is going to work.
2: Yeah that's the other part of this is like in addition to it not being like hard to read it's just like a relatively normal name and he treats like the fact that it's a Latino name as a real oddity as if that would be strange to people in San Diego. I don't think it would.
0: But we have another ad from Gil Cabrera. Let's listen.
2: I didn't want my son to grow up being an abuser like his dad. And I didn't want my daughters to learn how to be victims. It's very easy to look in the
1: mirror and be like, if someone ever hit me, I would leave the first time. I thought that those women were weak. And then I became one of them. My abuser was out of jail before I was out of the hospital.
3: I'm Gil Cabrera. Victims of domestic violence deserve a strong advocate.
0: As your next city attorney, that's what they'll get.
2: So that's a lot different.
0: Totally different.
2: Totally different. So both Gil Cabrera and also Robert Hickey have been outspoken on this domestic violence issue, which is something the city attorney deals with and something that we've learned relatively recently. They haven't dealt with all that well over the last year. Perhaps our friend Andy Keats can elaborate on that in just a moment. Um, But so they've seized on this Domestic violence is important. It's an important role of the city attorney, and I'm going to be the most effective champion for domestic violence.
0: And it's something that voters can can understand other than other than the sort of policy weigh-ins that the city attorney does. things that you know people that aren't paying a terrible amount of attention might not even notice is happening.
2: So one thing I wanted to point out about some of the chatter I've seen about this ad from some of Gil Cabrera's supporters is I saw a lot of people talking about the contrast between the two ads and them saying like, you know, this really shows the difference between the two of them because Rafael's ad is all about him. And that strikes me as actually like an absurd argument that you would knock somebody, a candidate for political office about their candidacy and their name. You know, I mean, the the name thing is silly for other reasons, like suggesting women can't read, but I don't think it's silly that a candidate would want to get their name before voters. And so that just struck me as like a very strange argument. to If make. anything,
0: his Cabreras takes the opposite approach that you barely hear his name. You, you might actually even miss who the ad is for, which... Could be dumber than having a dumb ad about your name uh, <laughs> if nobody knows who the ad was for. When
2: They're it's very different. to All be about sure.
0: name ID sometimes.
2: Yeah, so we're going to talk to our friend Andy Keats. You're familiar with Andy, yeah?
0: I've I've met the gentleman, met him.
2: You might recognize him from such Voice of San Diego podcasts as the, the Voice <laughs> of San Diego podcast. Yeah,
3: I got it. You How's got it. How's it going?
2: Hey, Andy. It's so
3: good to be here. It's
2: good to be here with yeah. you. Thank you. So this race.
3: Yeah, that's, that's other a good one. than
2: the fact that I can't remember how many candidates are in it. Let's learn <laughs> some other things.
3: Yeah, what do you want to know?
2: So you're writing. You've written a lot in the last week or two about this race, about how the climate action plan is factored in, mm-hmm, about how mm-hmm. everyone's friend Corey Briggs has factored in, and about the different conflicts that various candidates might bring into the office. Um, let's talk about Corey Briggs.
3: Okay, so Corey Br- So, this was actually like one of the early uh, issues to, that emerged in the race, I think, like back when no one was paying attention to it. There was a Lincoln Club forum that where Mara Elliott basically called out Gil Cabrera and said, uh, You should be like the opposite of touting this endorsement. You should be ashamed of it and you shouldn't have even accepted it in the first place. Um, all Corey does is sue the city and basically they're frivolous lawsuits and he's not about helping and he's, he's an impediment to San Diego. Um,
2: that seems like a natural argument to make from somebody who's in the city attorney's office now.
3: Yeah, and, I, and she is. So exactly. Correct. I think that's exactly where she came from is, is like that's it's a window into how that office views him as just like the enemy. Basically.
2: Yeah. So you mentioned in your story some of the press releases that the city attorney's (laughs) office has sent out. These are, they're quite something.
3: I mean, it's (laughs) like, like the city has deals with a lot of different lawsuits. There's only one guy that like, if they beat him, they just immediately send out a press release. And and they
2: send out press releases, not even when they clearly beat him, but like touting some nuance in the law to suggest that he's been beating, beaten really badly. Right. Yeah.
3: Uh, Yeah. So it's fascinating. So anyway, I I thought to myself, well, you know, it's, it it deserves to be taken seriously and we should figure out how, uh, how well they know each other. And I looked to see in the public record if there was any real connection between them beyond, uh, you know, this one donation. And there really isn't. Uh, So I talked to them about it and they've never worked on a case together. They've never even been opponents in a case together. Their familiarity as lawyers is really just through what the each of, what what each of them has done publicly and then as they explained to me when they get together every so often to talk shop over beers so they have like an acquaintance like relationship and they basically just respect each other and they seem to like each other but you know they they they're not the world's closest friends unless they are you know uh, hiding that but I don't think so
2: so let's talk about back up a second and talk yeah. about what are some of the big cases that Corey Briggs has been involved in where he's been on the other side from the city.
3: I mean, I think the biggest ones are the convention center expansion, which he, um, well, he he successfully challenged the funding mechanism. He still has litigation. I guess this isn't technically against the city, but it's related to whether it's even legal to build that convention center on the waterfront at all.
2: Right. So there's... The waterfront access issue and there's the mechanism by which the hoteliers decided to fund it um, by themselves without letting the public weigh in.
3: Right. And so he won that one. And it's actually – that one's actually an interesting one in terms of whether he's really all that adversarial to the city because that – you remember Jan Goldsmith, city attorney, said – specifically. Please
2: someone sue us so yeah. we can figure this out. Right? Yeah. We're
3: not sure if this is legal, please sue us. Uh, so he did. And then he won. Um, <laughs> he, he also has sued them on like, a, you know, a lot, a lot of small things uh, and you know, a bunch of different stuff. Um, one story that I did when I first started here was about uh, a lease extension that the city gave to Bill Evans for his Bahia, Bahia hotel. Um, after my story, Corey sued over that and, um, it just very recently that that was like two and a half years ago and just very recently it was determined that uh, there was nothing wrong with the lease he lost that lawsuit um, there was people might remember there was a great fervor over this jack-in-the-box uh, redevelopment in North Park uh, the community basically alleged that the city had uh, allowed them to rebuild the building in error, that it, it they shouldn't have been allowed to do that.
2: When everyone knows that the real issue with that drive-in is that it should be a Taco Bell. <laughs> <That's>,
3: or or <laughs> that's a Del Taco. What I plan to sue over. Would been, it would have been a heck of a plaintiff's suit. Yeah. Is like, and clearly <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna look into be, this. Uh, so he sued he sued for that. And I think the the biggest one that really bothers people though is that his lawsuit against the city over lease revenue bonds. Gil said at one point, look, sometimes Corey's wrong and I'm willing to tell him when he's wrong and he'll take it more seriously coming from me because unlike Jan, I don't always think he's wrong. And I said, well, when do you think he's wrong? And one example he cited was the lawsuit over these lease revenue bonds. This is the relatively complicated mechanism by which the city raises funds to build uh, basic infrastructure improvements. And it, it it's ends up being a lot of money by most people's standards, but not enough to improve our infrastructure situation. But it's how we build fire stations and roads. And uh, Corey's lawsuits did keep many of those projects from happening for a little while. And as Gil said, it it, it wasn't a particularly cloudy issue. The, the, the law was more or less clear on this, so they didn't really see the the benefit of the lawsuit. And, I th- and uh, Mara Elliott in the city's attorney's office had had mentioned those as well. I, I think that is one lawsuit that really sticks in people's craw about um, thinking that Corey did something that he shouldn't have.
0: Is Corey Briggs bringing people out to the polls? I mean, if somebody reads yeah. he's backing Gil, Gil- Cabrera, are, are people going, oh, I'm going to uh, Cabrera guy now, or are they... Conversely, voting for somebody else, does it really matter to voters?
3: I'm sure his profile is higher now than it was at this time a year ago based on the amount of time he spent on TV and talk radio talking about his citizens' plan and its connection to Chargers and San Diego State and a convention center. And that probably makes him a name that people know a little bit. But no, no. people. I mean, I don't think any... I remember you guys did uh, an episode about like when endorsements matter. I certainly don't think that this is one of the endorsements that people would rely on to make their decision.
2: So let's talk about some of the other candidates um, and sort of what conflicts slash experience they bring into the office. You've been looking into um, all of them, but particularly Rafael Castellanos and Robert Hickey. Tell us about what you found.
3: So I asked every all the candidates to provide me with their uh, past client list. Um, I thought, on one hand, maybe there will be some things that are conflicts of interest that would be interesting. But if nothing else, I thought it would be illuminating in terms of what type of work they've done and what types of experience they have that qualify them for the position. And so everybody was willing to do that, except for uh, Castellanos' team said that they would not be doing that. Um, I'll come to their defense a, a very little bit and say that, you know to the extent that he has some clients that are in general like a general counsel practice that he might have never had any uh public filing uh, that that identified him as their them as his client that that is not public information and it's, it's attorney like a client confidentiality privilege issue yeah. okay so he was unwilling to give me the rest of his client list i looked in the public record to see what else i could find and on the port commission so he's been on the port commission since the beginning of 2013 and uh, one name keeps coming up, and that's uh, the developer Sunroad. He has recused himself about 15 times from various votes while on the port commission. Uh, most of those are directly related to Sunroad. And it just says that either he or his firm has a has a relationship. So we know that he has worked with Sunroad. I asked him about it, and he said that he would abide by basic uh, legal ethics and would either recuse himself or, you know, create an ethical wall, as they call it, which is, you know, when something comes about that involves this agent, this company, you are out of it from the beginning to the end, right? You have nothing to do with it. So he said that's basically what he would do. But it's an interesting one because Sun Road has a history of getting into distinctly unusual legal issues with the city of San Diego. Very
2: strange issues. So Sun Road was sort of the like plan B in terms of ousting Bob Filner, as I understand it.
3: Yeah, I think that's a fair a way to describe it. There was a period
2: before we sort of knew the extent of how many women were going to come out against Bob Filner, in which it was just a handful of vague accusations. And there, was, so there were these vague accusations about women involving Bob Filner, and then there was also... Sun Road. Yes, yeah, so and then there was you also should, you should impeach Bob Filner because of these women, but also Sun Road.
3: Yeah, remember, so the, remember that, that interview Scott did with a guy from the Lincoln Club who said uh, he didn't think it was going to be the gals that got yeah. Filner kicked yeah, out of us. Surprise! It was going to be the the developers. Those gals
2: so, are stronger than anything.
3: So, <laughs> so that in that case, what happened was the. Sunroad was building uh, an apartment complex and as part of their like the requirements for building it, they agreed to build a park that was a city owned park that they built and it was kind of, you know, their apartment complexes surrounded the park area. And for emergency access issues, they had to leave a certain amount of that park area unbuilt upon so that fire trucks could get through basically. Well, they discovered at some point in the construction process that they had built into the footprint where they weren't allowed to build. So they needed to ask the city to essentially agree in perpetuity that they wouldn't build anything in this uh, in this medium area between where the park was and where their apartment buildings were. So you couldn't in the future build a play set or a swing set or a slide or whatever right there um, because it needed to just they needed to be sure that it would be free for emergency access. In any case, they went to the city and said, will you give us this? And the city council said, sure, fine, whatever. And Mayor Filner said, F that.
2: As he was wont to do.
3: Yeah, so he vetoed it, and then the details are a little fuzzy, but basically he offered the developer, in exchange for lifting his veto, that they would make a $100,000 donation to a fund that the city was going to use to pay for some community projects, like a statue, like and a
2: veteran, a veteran statue
3: in Ocean like that, Beach. Yeah. And I think like a, a bike event, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. that was unfunded. Uh, the developer agreed to do this. And then uh, the city attorney issued an opinion that said, like, this is not OK. This is a shakedown. Return the money. Right. So. There's a situation where like that might have been an issue if Rafael Castellanos was the city attorney because he wouldn't have been able to get in there because he's got a previous relationship with that. So that's one thing. Before that, an even bigger scandal in the Mayor Sanders administration was DSD permitted Sunroad to build a tower that was two stories too high. And the Federal Aviation Association had to order the the city uh, to make... Uh, the developer shaved two, two levels off of the building because of a nearby Montgomery field airport, uh, would have otherwise, it would have been like in the flight path if there was like, I think it was like a bad weather landing situation basically. So there's another situation and this involved the city attorney heavily as well. Uh, and Mike Aguirre was the city attorney at that time and played a big role in it. And so once again, there's involvement with the city attorney and this developer that would have been a more complicated situation given uh, Raphael's involvement. Now, what he says is, look, I work for a big, sophisticated law firm that represents big, sophisticated, important companies that do these things. Some level of conflict is inevitable. And I don't think that he's wrong about that. Um, it, it, and as long as, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with the conflict as long as you deal with it appropriately. So, uh, but nonetheless, I think it's revealing and worth knowing. And at the, at
0: the Port Commission, Cassianos is on the Port Commission. He said – one of his consultants said at one point, I think he reported this to sort of raise his name ID. That, that was a great chance for him to to get out and about around town.
3: Yeah, that was uh, – yeah, one of his his uh, consultants told me like, look, if you if – you, what you're trying to do is build a political career, you're on the Port Commission now – there's a lot of people that don't know what the Port Commission is. This is like this weird level of uh, of government that people don't really get all that well. You could go on kind of a barnstorming tour and go to all these different communities and explain to them what the Port Commission is and how it could help them. And in the process, you'll be introducing yourself to all these different communities.
0: And is the conflict affecting his job in a material way that these 15 votes he's had to recuse himself from? or Or is there just so much going on at the port that...
3: Well, it's a big deal. So the the Sunroad owns a marina on Harbor Island and they're redeveloping it into a 200-room hotel. And it's basically been that project coming back for more and more and more procedural different events through the port to to authorize it that he's just had to continually recuse himself. So it's basically has it has it hurt his performance? I don't know if that's fair, but he hasn't been involved in that big conversation that the port has has dealt with, um, because doing so would be a, a pretty severe conflict of interest.
2: I was just gonna say, it struck me. This is something else that jumped out at me about uh, his commercial is that he goes back to back pretty directly from saying he's an outsider, yeah. a port commissioner. <laughs> yeah. And those two things seem sort of inherently at odds to yeah. me. But port
3: commission's a pretty insidery thing. Right. Yeah.
2: So what did you find out about Robert Hickey and looking at his background? So he's right now a deputy district attorney, but he has not always been. Is that right?
3: Yeah. So he started his career as a deputy district attorney and then he left for a short period and then he came back. In the period he left, he worked, um, in private practice and one of his clients, this one jumped out at me as soon as they gave me the name was the Padres and JMI. JMI is, uh, the real estate developer basically owned by John Moore's former owner of the Padres that developed Petco Park. Um, and this is part of his, uh, forum introduction. When you go to these community forums where they speak to like 15 people at a time, he always says that he helped make that deal go through Um, And so I talked to him about it and that's like, that's really, that really is what he did. That, that, so that project, Bruce Henderson was a former city councilman and then kind of a, a Corey Briggs of his time who just sued the city all the time. And he sued, he really filed a lot of lawsuits against Petco Park. And at one point they couldn't issue, they couldn't issue bonds anymore. So construction just stopped for 15 months, I think, where Pedco Park had been started to be built, and then they just left it. And he, at the time he was involved, it was trying to resolve some of those lawsuits to get construction started again. Um, so to me, this one's kind of interesting, because Hickey, as a prosecutor, has made his case as city attorney around rebuilding the misdemeanor prosecution division of the city, and as it, especially as it relates to domestic violence charges. And that's a big part. That's still the primary case he's making for the office. But one logical claim against him would have been, well, you don't have experience doing these sorts of general counsel, land use and development type issues, which are in fact a big part of what the city city attorney does and maybe even what most people think of the job of the city attorney as being the, the legal counsel to the city council and legal counsel to the mayor. And so it's it is at least interesting that he ha- has this experience with this really big development project. The flip side is the potential conflict, and this one is pretty hypothetical, but it's not that hard to game out, which is JMI is now pushing for the citizens' plan that is promoted by Corey Briggs, and the JMI would like to build a uh, would would like this citizens' plan to be be in fact so they can do the, I think they want to build what a hotel basically down right next to Petco Park. The, the current city attorney says that plan is illegal. If in fact a, that pa- plan were to pass and the next city attorney runs a city uh, an analysis and determines that it is also illegal, there might be a time where the city is sitting across the table from JMI disputing the legality of this plan and that will be Hickey's ex-client. So that is also relatively interesting. Now, the, the bar rules, the state bar rules say basically that you're not, allowed, you're not allowed to be in an adverse position from a previous client. It comes down to um, whether you have uh, material confidential information. So it would basically be a question of whether he has that. And the fact that it's been so long uh, also gives him some benefit. And he ha- he's told me that he doesn't imagine it would be an issue. What would basically happen would be that the JMI would have to make some attempt to get him disqualified. And if they succeeded in disqualifying the whole office, they might have a hard time doing that. But if they succeeded in disqualifying the whole office, the city would have to hire outside counsel to represent them in that dispute. And that would be a big cost and the voters wouldn't get the benefit of the city attorney that that they elected.
2: This race is the best race. True or false?
3: It's a funny race at these forums. It's a funny race because... These are like really qualified people. They have like really intelligent debates up there. They, they tone them down a little bit because they need to communicate to a general audience, but they're five qualified people that understand what they're saying. When I interview them, it's challenging. They know the issues. They're smart. They have thought these things through and they're doing this like barnstorming tour for a crowds of like 15 people in elementary school auditoriums where no one even knows what the city attorney does in the first place, which makes it a very funny race to cover. And also like their, their fundraising totals are, it's a citywide race, but they've raised about as much money as like a typical city council race, which, you know, the same amount of money spread across nine times as many people is, it goes a lot less far, right? So it's, I don't know, it's just a it's a funny race. It's a funny race to watch. I don't know what to think, make of it.
2: Well, it's about to go from five very qualified candidates to two very qualified candidates. So that is correct. We'll see what happens. We've been talking a lot about the city attorney's race, which we mentioned is kind of a high profile race, at least in this June election. And now we want to talk about maybe the lowest profile races there are, which are judicial races. And in San Diego County, these are superior court judicial races. There are a handful of them.
0: We got a bunch of judges. They run every six years. We have 128 judges. That's a lot. And if they were a challenge, about 43 of them would be on the ballot this year. But only two have challengers. So So there's there's two
2: real races that we're talking about. Okay. Well, that's a little easier to wrap our minds around.
0: And we've automatically reelected these other people. They yeah. have new six-year terms Who knows?
2: now. Who knows what their deal is. Right. So let's talk about these two races. So when we were sort of doing research for some of this, this uh, magically landed in our inbox right before we taped the podcast. Thank you, San Diego County Bar Association, for your good timing. Except, So this was one place that I was really hoping could shed some light For voters in terms of making distinctions between these candidates. Um, But what they do is they don't actually endorse judges. They weigh in on their qualifications. And so in the two contested races that we're talking about, you know, this time around, they've actually named all four of the candidates. Two are sitting judges and two are people who are challenging those judges. All four of them are qualified. So that doesn't help. I mean, it helps for, you know, our judicial system that whoever is elected is going to be qualified there's
0: nobody recklessly irresponsible that's going to be joining the bar
2: i feel like i remember years past in which people actually have you know been rated unqualified and that's a really easy distinction for a voter is this person doesn't have what it takes according to a a lot of lawyers so we're gonna talk to joanna scavoni and she's an appellate attorney in town, and she's also a former president of Lawyers Club, and they weigh in on judicial races, and so you have a little um, experience with judges and with rating them. What should people be looking for when they're weighing in on these races, and where do they go for information?
1: Well, Sarah, it's a good question, so thanks for having me here today to talk about what is an important topic to me as a lawyer. Uh, There are a couple places where voters can go to educate themselves about these races. So you named one of them. The San Diego County Bar Association does do an evaluation process. As you mentioned, the San Diego County Bar Association, um, it's not an endorsement. It's not a rating. They're evaluating candidates for whether they're qualified for the position. So people who want to look deeper into that, they can go to a number of other sources. The League of Women Voters actually has a really great online tool called Easy Voter. And the Easy Voter Guide, um, has uh, itself provided information from the candidates, but voters can easily navigate that and they can read about the candidates. The candidates for judgeship also have regular ballot statements just like any other candidate. And those ballot statements, so I just got my uh, sample voter, um, my sample ballot in my email box actually. This year the registrar is doing it by email. So I was just looking through it and um, three out of the four judicial candidates have uh, have ballot statements. They have endorsements, just like any other candidate. So voters can look through the endorsements that judicial candidates have. And even though judges are not partisan, their race is a nonpartisan race. They can also go to the political parties and seek endorsements. So if candidates care about that, or if voters care about that, they can look Which political party has endorsed the judicial candidate. And one final idea is that, you know, one of the great things about the American judicial system is it's public, it's accessible to the public. So two of the candidates are current judges. And if people wanted to go and uh, watch them in action in the courtroom, they could certainly do that.
2: The other way that you become a judge is if you're appointed by the governor. When does that happen? And, and those people eventually have to run for reelection,
1: just like these judges are doing now, right? That's exactly right. So it's, it's sort of a confusing system because we have a mix here. So the state legislature decides how many judgeships we get. And here in San Diego, we have 134 allocated judgeships. As was pointed out, we only currently have 128 of them filled. So we have 128 Superior Court judges. And they could have gotten that job one of two ways. They could have been appointed by the governor or they could have gotten that seat by election outright. But each of those slots is a numbered slot. And once you receive that judgeship that fills that numbered Position that is your seat. So, for example, one of the judges who is currently up for re-election right now was only appointed last year by the governor. But the reason that he's up for re-election is because he was filling a vacancy that was almost at the end of its six-year term. So he had to immediately be up for re-election, even though he had only been appointed uh, less than a year ago. So I
2: feel like every two years or. You know, so often we we get into this same debate about why do we elect judges at all? And it's a very controversial thing, and not everybody does it that way. Um, Has there been any real movement to change that that you've seen? Or do you think this is something that we're just kind of like perpetually going to grumble about?
1: Well, it's interesting that you ask that. Actually, the last time uh, this was really a big issue in 2014, last time we were having a big national election, um, Justice O'Connor, the first female Supreme Court justice, had released a plan in June of that year where she was um, advising states that have only elected judicial systems to uh, move their practices to a system more like California. And so she re- released something actually called the O'Connor Judicial Selection Plan. And it Advised that a better system is to have a gubernatorial appointment, like we do in California, with retention elections, and there's also an evaluation process of the judges, sitting judges, that happens in between those uh, the appointment and the retention election, to allow voters to have some input, but not to have people elected to judgeships straight out straight off the bat. And and part of the reason that Justice O'Connor was weighing in on this is because of we've seen in recent years in states that that have solely an election system, the increasing influence of money in in the rate judicial races. And her view of this is that the more we have money in the courts, the less impartial courts are. And, and what we need to have a fundamentally fair and accessible judicial system is an impartial one.
0: I noticed that in the two judges that are incumbent judges that are running uh, on their endorsements page of their website, uh, most if not all of the other judges uh, have endorsed them. And I, that just seemed curious to go around all your colleagues and say, you want me to, you want me to stick around or not? That, that was an odd dynamic.
1: So I was relatively new to San Diego at the time this happened. But a few years ago, a number of judges were challenged and um, and the bench really rallied behind their colleagues that were um, that were challenged. And since then, I have seen that the judges really do rally behind their colleagues. And part of that, I think, is motivated by a desire not to open up the courts to um, outside moneyed challenges. And so, you know, for better or worse, I think that that's the thinking behind um, judges really standing with their colleagues. And so I think that that's what's driving that. One of the things I did want to point out is that I, I took a look at the stats just to compare uh, back to the 2012 elections, um, the last presidential. And, and one of the things that concerns me the most is how, you know, this term ballot drop-off, right? So we, I don't know if you've talked about this earlier in the show, but, um, but there is a lot of ballot drop-off in these judicial races. They, they literally fall at the very end of a voter's ballot. And so when, when you're looking back to the June 2012 primary, only 30 percent of eligible voters cast a vote in the judicial elections that were on the ballot then.
2: So they get kind of the worst of both worlds in that they're low information contests to begin with. And then by the time people reach the end of the ballot, they're already like – over it, and why even weigh in on something I don't know about?
1: Right. And the thing that's that's interesting about that is that um in in these races, when there are only two candidates, the reality is that race is probably going to be decided in June. And so it, it's not going to go to a November ballot. Um, It's only been, I think, in in recent memory, only one judicial race has gone to that to the November ballot. It's where there were three candidates on the June on the June ballot. And so if we only have 30 percent of voters weighing in, that's it's just not a big percentage of people. So I would definitely encourage people to educate themselves about the candidates and 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 fill in the boxes at the end of the ballot.
2: (laughs) So let's talk about a crazy ballot measure. So this measure is a little different than all of the ones that I've talked about up to this point, which were all measures that are trying to qualify for the November ballot. This is the one measure that is definitely going to be on your June ballot.
0: Is it crazy, though?
2: So I'm justifying this because of its tie to everyone's good friend, Shrimp Boy. Our favorite. It's really just an excuse for me to say Shrimp Boy. But that scandal, Shrimp Boy, was kind of the impetus for this in a way. So, you know, I'm not going to get into all the nuances of Shrimp Boy. Please do look up Shrimp Boy. Read about him. Read about Shrimp Boy. I'm just going to keep saying it.
0: And the wisdom and the criminality.
2: But so this was a criminal scandal that looped in one state legislator, Leland Yee, and the rest of the lawmakers in the legislature had to deal with what to do with him and also two other lawmakers who were involved in legal scandals. And so, you know, all of these lawmakers were facing criminal accusations and they had to decide whether to vote to suspend them, which they did. Um, But they kept earning their salary while they were suspended, which is almost $100,000 a year. So in comes this ballot measure, which would address that problem. And it would say that lawmakers could be suspended without pay. So that's a pretty logical um, way to deal with that problem. Seems
0: equitable to the taxpayers. Seems
2: equitable. So – our friends at Cal Matters, which is another nonprofit news organization based in Sacramento, have um, a great story sort of vetting Prop 50 this week. So I'm going to pull a little bit from that. Um, and no one's actually spending money against this measure, which is strange. And it's also strange that it's the only one in a year where we might see. 20-plus measures on the November ballot. This is the only one on the June ballot. No one's spending any money for or against it. And and like you said, on its face, it makes a lot of sense. But um, actually, one of the chief critics of the measure is from San Diego, and that's Senator Joel Anderson. Um, So I talked to him a week or so ago for some separate stuff about uh, gun bills that he's involved in, and he was really fired up about this measure. And he also provides the case against it in your pamphlet, your voter's pamphlet. And his case is kind of twofold. One, he thinks it's essentially, you know, you're not having a representative during that period. You voted for someone and you're not being represented by that person while they're suspended. He thinks that if you're going to kick somebody out, you should go all the way and just expel them from the legislature. And he's also worried as a Republican, which are few and far between in the state legislature, that since this doesn't lay out any reasons why somebody could be suspended without pay, that it could just happen to people like him who may be voice unpopular opinions um, and people could just get mad and vote him out. Now it's a pretty high bar um, to get suspended without pay under this measure. I think two thirds of both houses have to agree to do it, which is, you know, a lot. Um, But sort of that's his case is that you should either kick them out all the way or or don't do it at all.
0: And are supporters suggesting that being there without pay while suspended might uh, force some people that uh, you might want to might want to leave the legislature to leave because they can't just sort of be on the dole while they're not working?
2: Well, I think the thing that people are really concerned about is that, you know, criminal charges don't. Always stick. And so I think, you know, they're trying to walk this tightrope between acknowledging these serious issues and also taking someone's job away for something that they might not have actually done. So there you go. That will be on your ballot this June. So better read that pamphlet with Joel Anderson. Let's talk about our favorite things from this week. What was your favorite thing, Ray?
0: Well, uh, there's been stories about the Nebraska and the West Virginia primaries and, and the presidency. Uh, the presidential nominations look close to sealed up, we'll see obviously. But I, my favorite thing is the, the verb choices of parachuting journalists into rural areas. Um, you're going to see a lot of words like hardscrabble. Um, some people that were eating at a diner, and of course it was a diner. Uh, In West Virginia, my home state, we're tucking in to a meal.
2: I hate tucking in.
0: I don't know what it means.
2: Never. I feel like in probably my first 20 years of life did I hear anyone say they were tucking into a jelly donut, but apparently. (laughs) I think it's one of those phrases that you only see written.
0: Right. You would never say it. I, I just imagine somebody folding themselves under a pancake, but... I don't know, and and there's a there's like a history of this in in war uh, journalism. You saw uh, back uh, during the insurgency, you saw a lot of of the word royal royal, as in the sort of like uh, you know mess up, steam up, or Warren uh, as a as a word for a maze. There were a lot of Warrens in um, in Iraq, and uh, I just I have never heard those words on the street.
2: So these are maybe your own... Favorite things.
0: I I like making a sport of finding them, and um, you know, I tweet about them or put them on Facebook because it just shows this sort uh, of—it shows that you're in your head when you're writing about this place, rather than in the place that you're writing about.
2: I feel like this is probably a particular thing that bothers both you and I, coming from D.C. and watching this core group of D.C. journalists, like you said, parachute into different areas. Obviously, uh, when the Bob Filner scandal was going on, I was had just come from D.C., and, but I still already felt this kinship with San Diego, and it was so aggravating to watch people come into town and talk about it like they knew all the ins and outs and just to see how much they got wrong.
0: This sunny seaside village right. or something.
2: A lot of that, yeah. And you
0: have a favorite thing? I have a
2: favorite thing. I warned Rye before we started taping that I was probably going to start cracking up as I explained this, so I'm already starting. My favorite thing is a... Twitter account. It's called at photos of TV. You might've seen it. So this is just a hilarious account that takes screen grabs. Um, they're mostly from local news, but some like CNN screen grabs get in there and they're almost always of, I think they're called Mm cryons. So if I was appearing on TV, it would be like Sarah Libby, managing editor of voice of San Diego. But not everyone who appears on TV is like there as an expert or whatever. And so a lot of times it's like, you know, Regina Smith saw a cat. (laughs) And there's just something about seeing it in a photo on a screen that is amazing. And all of these tweets are always totally devoid of context. And so I wrote down some of the most recent too. There was Beverly Fourier, notable tree owner. And the best one was Jackson Gessel, (laughs) I'm dying, (laughs) approached by goat. (laughs) So, like, it's just a delightful injection in my Twitter feed, these random photos of TV. This man, approached by goat. I saw, um. (laughs) I'm so longing for the details of that encounter, but I'll never know.
0: I saw a KUSI segment the other morning where the reporter goes after somebody who's walking their dog and they're like wearing a Black Sabbath shirt. And it's just clearly very early in the morning for this person. And the KUSI person begins interviewing them. And I just can imagine the sort of Black Sabbath fan from Modesto with dog would be the... the,
2: Man with dog. Would be a great Man enjoys Black Sabbath. (laughs) Oh my god. And that's it for this week. Highly (laughs) recommend.
0: But but first, uh, before we leave, a uh, a word from Andy Cop, a Voice of San Diego member and supporter.
3: My name is Andy Cop and I'm a Voice of San Diego supporter. I donate because Voice's stories touch on the local issues which impact our daily lives.